The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. So Philippians chapter 2 is where we are again tonight. We are continuing on in yet a second section that I think you can find pretty easily in chapter 2. Uh, as I've said so many times, the section that really kicked off chapter 2 really goes back into chapter 1 and verse 27, goes down through approximately chapter 2 and verse 11. And then from that point, there is primarily one uh, overriding section or overriding theme that you'll find on into chapter 2 that goes really from verses 12 on down through verse 30. However, there are several subheadings that occur during that point. Uh, and during that overriding theme that I think we're going to have to draw out as we go through, uh, and uh, we're trying to do that. As a matter of fact, I may have mentioned on last week, if not, it may have been the week before, that I believe that verses 12 and 13 are most uh, best understood, I should say, when you read them certainly together, when you make sure that you tie the fact that, yes, it is the case, the latter part of verse 12, that we ought to work out our own salvation. However... That is only possible when we allow God to work in us. And I heard someone make this quote today, and I, I thought it was impressive, although it's right here in the text. And it was basically that you cannot work out for God until He works in you. And so we can't be prepared for this life until we allow God to work within us already. And, of course, that's what really is being expressed there in the latter part of verse 12 and verse 13. Then verse 14, uh, going forward, is not separate from that. However... Uh, to, to me, at least, on first impressions, the verse 14 seemed a little bit uh, awkward, uh, seemed a little bit out of place. I don't think that's the case at all anymore. But God made mention through the Apostle Paul in his pen, he said, do all things without murmuring and disputing. And of course, there were obviously murmurings that were going on in, in amongst them as people. There were disputes that were going on. Paul's already addressed to an extent some of those things that were potential. Uh, mainly being what we might have once called the false teachers. I don't know if you can call them that because Paul said that they preached Christ. And so I think their teaching was appropriate, but their attitude, their mindset, uh, the, the way that they probably were a part of the murmuring and disputing was outside of the line of God. Uh, but he warns them against that. But more importantly, more directly in the context, he warns us to do whatever we do for God without murmuring or disputing toward him and having the right mindset ourselves, and that is to have an open heart in order that we could obey Him. And then he goes on here and says that, or in order that, you may be blameless, verse 15, harmless sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I, may have, but that I may not have run in vain, neither labored in vain. And that's kind of where we were on last week as we stopped off. And I think I made a, tried to make a pretty good point out of the idea and remind us how important it is that we've got to hold forth the Word of God. We've got to hold forth the Gospel. We've got to hold forth God's Word as a whole. And we've got to allow the world to see that. And I think that's directly related to the phrase just above it, that we should shine as lights in the midst of that crooked and perverse nation because we certainly have an opportunity to do that 
We certainly live in the midst, not just of a nation, I think in, in, a, in a sense, in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. And so we've got to take our opportunities to shine as those lights, which I remind you are only a reflection of what God is, and that is the true light, Christ saying He was the light of the world. And holding forth not only could be translated in that way, could also be translated as holding fast. And I think if you see it in that light, you get even more information and you get more of an orderly thought process going. And that is, I have to first hold fast to the Word before I can hold it forth. I've got to be a true example of what the Word is, not just in what I say, but in the way I live. And Paul says, if that is done, he doesn't use the word if here, but basically it's what he says. He does use it in 17 in a moment. But he says, basically, if that's done, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to rejoice in knowing that the labor that I, that's Paul speaking, have put forth was not in vain. It was not empty. And I may have pointed out last week that word vain or in vain, that phrase right there, carries with the idea of a foolish and useless vessel. And that's basically like taking, and I had one of these just a few weeks ago, I, probably all of us, we either have Tupperware, it's not really Tupperware anymore much, but you've got the Gladware and the different plastic containers, and I had one the other day, and I put some chicken and gravy in it, so you know about how messy this is fixing to get, and I had a crack right in the bottom. Popped the lid on, threw it in the refrigerator, and then it was time to clean up. And that's just the way it is, because that vessel was empty, that vessel was broken and then when that happens or if that happens then all the labor was in vain and I had plenty of labor to go with that so it doesn't fully fulfill the illustration but my previous labor was in vain because most of that went to waste now verse 17 he says yay he's continuing on this idea and by the way I didn't share this with you I continue to outline and sub outline all of this if you want to add to some of those outlines I gave earlier basically verses 15 and 16 talk about Paul's fortune and then here, beginning along about verse 17 and following, he's going to talk about his friends, those cohorts, those compadres, you might say, that he participated with. But he says here, And yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice of service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. So he says, My labor, I don't want to find out or learn that any of my labor has gone in vain. And then in turn from that, He's telling them that he has offered himself, basically, as a sacrifice on their behalf. Now, that's not for their sins. We understand that as Bible students. That's not saying that he's offered anything of himself to prevent them from having sins, but he gave himself as a service to them so that they, in their case, first century times, they could learn, they could grow, they could advance, they could be strengthened. And so forth is that. And he offers himself up. And we're going to see this verse here, verse 17, as well as several more down the page concerning Epaphroditus in verse 25. And really what I think is the conclusion to this whole, well, it is the conclusion as far as verse number go, but verse 30 is the conclusion to basically this whole chapter which carries with the idea of how much service and how much work Paul as well as Timothy, he's about to mention, as well as Epaphroditus in the same context, that they were willing to give for the cause of Christ. And so the ultimate question will come out toward the end of that, how much service, labor, work would I be willing to do for the cause of Christ? And so that's where we're eventually going to get to. But he says, I, I just want to know, I want you to know that I am prepared to be offered 
as a sacrifice because of the service for your faith. Now, that word offered, it comes from a Greek word, which I don't pronounce it like Grecian Greeks would or like New Testament Greeks would, but it comes from a Greek word that looks like something to the effect of spindo. Spindo. And that word actually carries with the idea of a drink offering that has been poured out. Is anybody familiar with the drink offerings of the Old Testament? What were those things like? Basically, and this is just in a nutshell, under Old Testament law, the way that different and various sacrifices were, were used and meant to be used toward God, and these sacrifices, in a sense, were being stacked. And I don't know if that's the right term, but were being stacked to show uh, somewhat of the Hebrew persuasion, somewhat of that uh, Old Testament time, at least, under law of Moses, would show these sacrifices by basically sacrificing an animal. And then after that animal has been completely prepared, obviously in death, so throat cut, bled out, that sort of thing, as that sacrifice was about to be set on fire and offered up ultimately as it would be, they would oftentimes take very precious ointments, they would take oils, they would take other precious, I guess, liquids or something like that, and they would pour that out from a cup over those sacrifices. Now, what exactly the representation was there, I'm not positive, but it seems that that continues to prove their entire and complete devotion that they've been given to God. Now, you imagine the chiefs prepared a sacrifice, and in their case, just using the lamb, for example, you've already gone out into your fields, You've already delved into your flocks and you brought back that animal that is spotless and without blemish. So you met that first part of the command. You brought it up there. You brought it to the priesthood. They're making the sacrifice. You're standing there in the courtyard or wherever you would be, standing off from that. And as you're watching that sacrifice occurring, actually taking place, someone steps up and adds to that an additional, for lack of better terms, layer that makes that sacrifice even greater. And so Paul says, I am in a sense, I'm as that drink offering, verse 17, that has been placed as a sacrifice and a service, watch what he says, of your faith, I joy and rejoice. Now, if you want to put a parallel text with this, not completely in all of its thought, but at least a parallel in some senses, to the word that is chosen here by God for Paul to write, the English word offered, you can look over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. And that's in the context of, remember, Paul writing his second letter to Timothy, perhaps, and even likely, his last letter he would write as he stood on earth as a man in flesh and blood and living and breathing. The last letter he writes, he closes that letter out in the last section of it at least, getting down to telling Timothy that he said, quote, I am now ready to be offered. You say, well, what does Paul mean by that? Paul means by that, I'm ready to be poured out. Whether he was referencing, I think he probably was, referencing that biblical example of a drink offering, of something in addition to that being poured out, sacrificed to God, or whether, and I think this relates as well physically, potentially, he's relating to the fact that Paul is ultimately going to have his blood spilled. What does tradition, not Bible, not found in the Bible, what does tradition say happened to the Apostle Paul? That he was put on the cross, 
Peter. That's Peter. Beheaded. It is assumed, and probably rightly so, and remember, a lot of what we would call tradition uh, comes from basically second and third century times. Now I say that because basically the first century is wrapped up and, and combined up in the majority of what we have, well, all of what we have in Scripture, but the majority of the information we have comes from but one source, and that's the Bible. And then along about the second and third centuries, men started putting out just human works, not inspired of God, but just human works. A lot of historians came on the scene and such as that. One of the names we'd be familiar with would be someone like Josephus. And they start writing about what is history in their mind, but ultimately helps and assists us with what we know as biblical history. And they start writing about events and people and places and times that they are very familiar with. Matter of fact, that they, some of them, could have been eyewitness to. And they start testifying to the reality of God, the reality of Christ, and, and so many other things. Now, do we need that to back up Scripture? No, we don't need that. But it does help us as a confirmation and continued confirmation that either on the one hand Scripture is true or on the other hand those men are telling the truth. And those two things going together make that. Now as a part of that, the reason I said all of that, if you've got a writer, this is just supposition here, but if you've got a writer in second century times, he potentially easily could have spoken of an event that either he and or his father witnessed. And we're not exactly sure about this either. We do know the Apostle Paul writing this book right here uh, sometime around the 62-ish A.D. thing, at least what I say, 58 to 63 is kind of the normal accepted span of time. But around the 62-ish A.D., the Apostle Paul ultimately, we believe, my disclaimer, only believe, and it's only a guess, believe the Apostle Paul may have died sometime around 68-ish, if that's true, whether it is or not. If that's true, if you've got someone who's living in the year 200, is it the year 200? I don't keep up with that. I don't do good on that century stuff. You've got someone that's born at the very beginning of the second century. He could easily have heard directly from his father, Paul was beheaded. Could have. Just, just could have. And could have easily understood then, more so than we do so many thousands of years removed from it, more understood what the mindset of the day was as far as if someone were to say, I'm now ready to be offered. Could have, in his history at least, especially if he was a Jew coming into Christianity, could have said, you know what, I know what the Old Testament drink offerings were like. Or could have in short-term history, been able to say, you know what, I know what at least is rumored or supposedly witnessed to have happened to Paul. So whether he was beheaded or not, I wouldn't argue, but I know Paul said this to Timothy for sure, I am now ready to be offered. And what's the next phrase there in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6? I'm now ready to be offered. What's he say next? The time of my departure, departure is at hand. Now he's not talking about walking out of prison, don't know that he did by that time. 
He's not talking about going to the next city, which he had done so many times in his journeys and missionary journeys we refer to them. He's not talking about that. He's talking about death and the potential for death. And so Paul says, in a sense, with some of those reflections in mind, or at least those things that would be coming later as a reflection of this, he says, in a sense, I'll give myself up for you. And he had done so. He said, yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now, verse 18, carrying on with that same thought, he says, for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Now, remember the way this letter kind of starts itself off, of course, by Paul's writing, he starts it off more or less giving, praising the brethren there in and around Philippi, coupled with the saints, coupled with the bishops and deacons, elders and deacons, coupled with uh, the, any of the members that were there. But by the time we got down to the latter part, to middle, middle to latter part of chapter 1, particularly in verse 13, Paul started talking about the fact that whether he was in prison or not would not matter. That the gospel was not going to live and die based on where he was located in life and what his, uh, whether he was basically alive or dead. We're going to change that. That's kind of verse 13 from chapter 1. And then he continues for the rest of the first chapter and on into chapter 2 to persuade them for the fact that they would be in the midst of verse 30 of chapter 1 in the midst of conflict and that they would have to take a stand and that they would, they would have to stand firm in that and they would have to be what he called a part of the fellowship of the Spirit and the bowels of mercy and that they would need to be, verse 2, fulfill ye my joy by being like-minded, having the same love and the same mind and the same judgment. Now we're across the page, at least for me, it's right almost directly across the page from that reference. And he says to them, I'm rejoicing in this. I'm rejoicing in the fact that I potentially could be or are willing to be offered. And you should be rejoicing in that as well. Now there were probably some brethren in Philippi, obviously, if they had that personal friendly connection, that family-type feeling or connection, it would have been, you know, saddened by the loss of Paul if it would, would have occurred during this time. But he says, that is for my joy as well as yours. So he starts in really strong now talking about his friends. Verse 19, he said, But I trust in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, to send Timotheus shortly to you, and I also, you may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now, why, we assume Epaphroditus, as we're about to learn, why was Epaphroditus, or maybe he and other servants, why were they sent to Paul in prison? Well, to tend to his needs, another term that could be used, yes, sir? Comfort him. To comfort him to learn of his condition. Uh, an overriding term that we might use, if we use it properly, is to minister to it. And also would bring back news from the places where he came. Yes, and in this case, I think they surely did. And in other cases as well, we've already studied the books of Colossians and Ephesians, and both those books, as well as the book of Philippians, and Philemon come as a result, seemingly, of someone 
Well, you can go ahead and add in some more of the letters. First and second Corinthians. Many of the letters the apostle writes come as a result of someone who has basically come to Paul and reported of an individual or a church's state. And so they send Epaphroditus, apparently, to come and minister to Paul on their behalf by their request. And then Paul basically turns to them and says, Look, I want to check on you. I want to know how you are. In more or less, in, you know, in Munford terms, he says, Look, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. Don't be so worried about me. How are you? You ever been around anybody like that? I had many times in life. One of the people that my wife always tells of, and I, I saw it myself, and, and I agree, we used to go over and visit when we were blessed to live next door to Ruth Scott. Some of you don't know who Ruth Scott is. She's been gone many years. But we would go over to see Miss Ruth. She was laying in the bed, dying of cancer, terrible shape like anyone would be who's dying of cancer, and you couldn't get a word in edgewise about her. Nothing. If you tried to ask, how do you feel? How are you doing? Uh, you know, is, how are you? I mean, she'd turn it and turn it and turn it. And, and we appreciate those attitudes. We appreciate those uh, people who are like that. And Paul is seemingly that type of person. And he says, so we're rejoicing together, but I trust. Now, the word trust here is, could easily be translated as the word hope. But it's the idea of what we consider as biblical hope. How do we typically define the word hope biblically? I've heard this all my life. Desire coupled with expectation. So I want it, but I have to expect it. It's at least got to be a potential out there for it to be hope. This is a little bit more, I almost said, well, I'll say it because it's all I know, but it's a little more serious than that. Because this is the idea of having a faith, in a sense, or a trust, a hope that is built on experience. Now, there's just a, just a hairline difference between someone who says, I expect to do this, and in my experience, I will. Let me show you a little bit of a difference. If I would, and this is bringing it way down, but if I were to say to you that I hope, I desire, and expect to leave here tonight and go get ice cream, that'd be a treat. For me, it would be. I don't really have any experience to prove that might happen. We don't traditionally go get ice cream on Wednesday night after services. I still would like it. I still would hope that it would happen. I still might even have some level of expectation that if I get down on my hands and knees and beg and plead and promise to do a thousand other things, we'll all go. Not literally, maybe. But I don't have any experience. I can't say, versus if I said this, I hope that when we leave here, we'll go home and eat a snack. We had supper, thankfully. We'll go home. I know that will happen. Why? Because I've been eating a snack every night of my life since I was that tall at 9 o'clock. Every night. It used to be three hot dogs. Every night. 
For Cameron, it's three fried eggs every night. It's experience. And so Paul says, look, I trust. I trust the Lord by experience. I trust in the Lord Jesus that I can send to you Timotheus shortly that I may also be of good comfort. So Paul says, look, you sent Epaphroditus to check on me. We're fixing to get to what happened to him. But you sent him to check on me. But what I want to do is check on you. And since it's apparent I'm not walking out of here today, I elect that my solution is to send Timothy, Timotheus. Now, had Paul ever sent Timothy anywhere or left Timothy somewhere? You can do this right here. And sometimes, uh, and I'm just, we're looking at it many years removed, sometimes some of the places Timothy got left, it was apparent they were difficult places. They were, they were tough spots. And so just making it on the most human realm you can, for example, you've got Timothy left in Ephesus for a long time. That's hard. If Paul sent a note and said, hey, Timothy, how about go over to Philippi? How quick would Timothy move? He might get gone quick. It's a better opportunity, or at least a, a more comfortable opportunity. So he says, I trust God, that, that the Lord, that he could be sent to you. He could be with you shortly. And then he uses the words that I know your state. So basically this is like what James would say, if the Lord wills, this can occur. Verse 20, he said, For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. No man like-minded. What does it mean to be like-minded? It's exactly what it sounds like. To have a, the similar or the same mind. The same thought process. Literally here the word that he chose or that God chose for him was like-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D. Like-souled is what he said. And so what he may be saying, there are two sides of this coin. I've looked at both, and I'm not sure which one to leave turned up. Uh, but he may be saying that, look, me and Timothy, we think a lot alike in everything. For example, in the way that we serve God. Timothy was a servant, just as Paul was. As a matter of fact, you want to prove that to yourself. You go back, what's the third word, chapter 1, verse 1? Paul and Timotheus. So, so they did a lot of the same things together, ended up in a lot of the same places together. Uh, and in this case, he says, could be saying, and I think could, possibly could at least, be saying that, look, we, we got the same mindset. We got the same goal in mind. But potentially, contextually, and we'll get down to this in a moment and a little bit more, but he's saying there, this, this guy Timothy here, there's no other person that I know about who has the same like soul to me, and that is the same care for you. When he was in Athens, he sent Timothy to Yes. And Timothy, because he trusted Timothy, as, as he trusts the Lord in the preceding verse, he trusted Timothy to do that, and he again recognizes Timothy's Compassion for people, I'm assuming. Where did Timothy get his strength? Directly through his mother and grandmother, and uh, ultimately found himself being much like Paul as far as what he was willing to do. Others, you know, left, left them for who knows what real circumstances, but Timothy remained. 
And so he says, I want you to, I want you to know I can send Timothy. And I, I want to send Timothy to you because he can naturally care for your state. The idea of naturally care is have a genuine interest in your state. He says this, for all, verse 21, seek their own, seek their, uh, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Jesus Christ. But ye know that the proof of him, who's that refer to? Timothy, that is a son with the father hath served with me in the gospel. So you know that he's different. You know that when the majority of men are out looking out for themselves, putting themselves first, putting themselves ahead of everything else, he said, Timothy's not that guy. He's looking out for the benefit of others. Now, if you want to go across the page, we've already seen that idea when we read in verse 3 of chapter 2, let nothing be done for strife, or what's the next phrase? Vain glory. And then goes on to explain that. Look not, verse 4, every man upon the things, on his own things, but every man also in the things of others. So he said Timothy's willing to do that. Timothy is a picture of, of what's found in verse 3 and 4 of the same chapter. So he's willing and probably desirous to send him. Now, the term here, that ye, that, but ye know the proof of him, was what we refer to today as a metallurgy term, which that's a bigger word than we use around here often, but it literally meant to bite the coin. What do some of these old-timers supposedly do when they bit a coin? They, they would check it to make sure what, what material it was, gold or what have you. And they would supposedly check that by biting the coin. So basically Paul said, I bit the coin on this fella, and he is my type of guy. He's willing to seek after your estate above his own. Now, here's a character really who's even more so than that. He says... Him, therefore, verse 23, I hope to send presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. So as soon as I see what's going to happen with me, I'm going to make sure Timothy gets to come to you. Or if, if I can't come to you, then Timothy will come. Verse 25, yet I supposed it necessary. Now, here we're meeting a new character. I supposed it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, which he clarifies, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. And he ministered to my wants. So now we're starting to learn here about Epaphroditus and about what Epaphroditus has done and what their intent for Epaphroditus has been which was, as we just kind of brought all together to say, he came to minister. You sent him here to minister to me. I would like to get out and come see you. If I can't do that, I'm going to send Timothy. But better yet, while we're working at this right now, I am going to send Epaphroditus. Now, who's read ahead in the context and knows why he's going to send Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus has been sick. Epaphroditus came and served Paul up into the point, we'll see this in the latter verses of the chapter, up into a point that he made himself sick. 
He worked that hard. And Paul said, I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you. And he describes him as, first of all, my brother. Brother what? How did he become his brother? Not by birth. Uh, I, I like to alliterate, not by birth, but by burden. Because he took upon himself the mind of Christ and became a servant. Preceding chapter right across the page. So he says, he's my brother. Then he goes on to say the same thing, really. He says, my companion. My companion. Who would you call your companions? People you spend time with. You know, I sometimes will say, well, I've got a friend that lives in North Carolina. I've got a friend there, but he ain't a companion. Why is that? I hadn't seen him in 20 years. So, we, you know, we still might communicate, but I, I don't get to spend time with him. Paul said, I spent time with him. I know this guy. He's my companion. He's a companion in specifically in labor and a fellow soldier. Was Paul a soldier? In God's army, in God's army if no other. Now, he was familiar, and he often referred to, as we keep reflecting on that text in first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he said, I'm now ready to be offered. The time out of departure is at hand, for I have fought a good fight. He was familiar with soldiers. He was familiar with what it was like to be in an army or a military, but he's applying that to spiritual things. And he says, this guy, Epaphroditus, is a fellow soldier of mine. He's not only a brother, he's a companion. He's a fellow soldier, but your messenger, your messenger. What do we assume and I think can gather from this, what do we assume Epaphroditus was to them? He was definitely the messenger. That's what he says here. The assumption is that he had some type of direct service with the brethren Philippi. I've heard people suggest, I don't think they would necessarily, could, I don't think they could be proven wrong that he was their minister, local preacher. Uh, he could potentially have been an elder there uh, or any other form, uh, at least active in what he did. He, but he, to Paul, or for them, was the messenger. And he, now the word comes in, ministered to my wants. So he is a minister of sorts. What does it mean to minister? We just covered this in some other reasons. It means service. How many ministers does the average congregation have? A trick question. Don't jump that one too quick. It better have a whole lot more than one. Whole congregation. Whole congregation. Now, again, this is being picky and being a stickler and, and all this sort of thing. When I first moved to Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, the previous located preacher's name was on the sign and of course it was about uh, the first or second Sunday some deacon went out there after serve and took a razor blade and scraped his name off and said we're going to get a new sticker next week put your name on there I said why are you changing stickers change that from minister to evangelist just, just stickler now <laughs> my, my point was there ought to be a whole building full of ministers And uh, they, they changed it. They obliged. You know, it didn't it wasn't make or break anybody, but it was just, just a, uh, really to make a, a point, not a preference, but a point. 
And so he says that he for you has been a messenger and that he ministered to my wants. For he, he says, verse 26, he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because ye had heard that he had been sick. He heard that you heard he had been sick. Now again, I heard someone make this remark one time. I don't agree with it. I'm just repeating it because this is what I heard someone try to remark from this. They said, well, look at there. He's sick and he didn't tell nobody. Half folks in here, they want you to know every Sunday. they sick and the cousin's uncle. Look, it's not about making announcements and prayer lists. For whatever reason, according to what Paul is writing, it may suggest that, look, he did not want anybody feeling sorry for him. He didn't want anybody wasting concern over him. Well, guess what? Paul is in the midst of a room full of people like that because he's got himself, he's got Timothy, and he's got Epaphroditus temporarily. And, and all of those people, all those individuals are putting themselves beneath everybody else. They're serving others. And so right here he says he's filled with heaviness full of heaviness, because ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed, he was sick. How sick? Nigh unto death. That's bad sick. This man was sick to the point that the assumption was made, potentially, that he was going to die, or maybe at the point of death. But God had mercy on him. Verse 27, not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, why didn't Paul just heal him? Yes, and I, I've heard this mentioned several times by several people. Maybe Shane brought it up at some point. I don't know. I, I listen to a lot of things during the week, a lot of Bible-related stuff, and Paul didn't heal him for one on the most legal sense of it. He couldn't. Paul didn't heal nobody. Neither did the apostles. If someone were to be healed, it would be because of God by His power. But in addition to that, as just mentioned, the purpose of miracles is not to go around and clean hospitals out and empty graveyards. So Paul says, we got a man who's sick. He's so sick he almost died. Or was to the point, nine to death. But by the mercy of God, he was spared. Because he said, what if he died? God would have had sorrow upon sorrow. Paul did not want to lose his brother. But he's going to send, and ultimately he tells us in the next verse, which we'll get to, I assume, next week. I'm trying to finish this week, but... As he's going to tell them, he wanted to send him back to them. Thank you for your attention.